Before we get started, I want to talk about sponsors that help make this show possible. I've partnered with swimming companies that can serve our international audience. I'd like to introduce our newest sponsor, Swim Angelfish. Swim Angelfish is an online certification program that strengthens your teaching curriculum to serve swimmers of all abilities. Swim Angelfish will prepare you and your instructors with the skills to teach swimmers with autism, physical disabilities, anxiety, sensory and motor conditions, and more. Learn to teach skills faster and with more comfort with Swim Angelfish. Apply for an only alpha pool product scholarship and receive up to 50% off your certification. Go to swimangelfish.com today to apply. One of the best ways to build power in the pool is by using a tower. I got introduced to Chuck Destro. Because of the way Chuck designed them, they can break down and ship in a much smaller box so they can ship anywhere in the world for a reasonable price. Use code BRETT at checkout and save $150 on a double swim tower. That means if you order two, you can save $300. Order four, save $600. Go to destromachines.com to get your team stronger in the water today. Looking to host your first swim meet or replacing an old timing system? Run a swim meet with ease from your laptop using superior swim timing. You can use superior swim timing with your existing equipment, or they can provide you with a complete timing solution, including deck harnesses, buttons, and starter. SST is fully compatible with HiTech and Team Unify, as well as Colorado, Dactronics, and Amiga touchpads. Go to superiorswimtiming.com to learn more and be sure to tell them I sent you. Nate's come out with another awesome tool for the swimming community. It's called Swim Nerd Live, and it allows the data and times from your actual scoreboard to be broadcast and viewed in real time on any smart TV, phone, or other device. It has all the information you're looking for, event, heat, lane, name of swimmer, times and places. One click on any device and they're watching your swim meet live in real time. Go to swimpractice.com to learn more. All right, Gian Rooney, finally I get you on the podcast. How are you doing? It's only taken us how long? <laughs> <laughs> Trying to pin this down for a while. Absolutely, but no, thrilled to be on. Usually you only have superstars and pop stars. What am I doing here? I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what, you said the word thrilled. I was thrilled. I was just going through your uh, Wikipedia page and and I found my name on it. I was like, yes. Yeah. Was like, it says here training partners, you know, while you're at, while you're in Melbourne was was Matt Welsh, Michael Klim. And then there's this long sentence after. I was like, oh, okay, all right. They didn't they didn't recognize me. And then right at the end, it's like, and Brett Hawk. I'm like, yes, I made it. Yeah. <laughs> You're integral, my friend. You taught me how to train smarter, not harder. Yeah, I think I was kind of one of the first at the time, kind of into that system a little bit, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I only knew how to absolutely punish myself and my body just wasn't holding up anymore especially by the time I got to Melbourne uh and you were one of the ones that taught me how to do it properly as a sprinter and I was going back to my sprinting roots yeah yeah well I was well I think we were lucky we had we had Popey who was 
he was um, good in the respect that he was good at a lot of things, but he was good in the respect of that he allowed you to have input into the program too, you know, and there's not a lot of coaches like that. And so I think for us as older athletes, we all had a little bit where we could kind of interject into what we wanted and how we wanted to do things a little bit. And he certainly gave me um, freedom to kind of explore what I wanted and how I wanted to do it within the boundaries of his system for sure. So, Absolutely. It took me actually a long time to figure out that. And I'm quite fascinated by that transition of athletes when they go from an age group athlete mm-hmm. to – or a child to an adult because ultimately as you just said a coach needs to be able to transition with that person as they make that transition but I I know with my first coach coach Dennis Cottrell who was unbelievable and I credit him with so much but I always felt like a a child in that relationship because Mm. I was until I left him at 19 to um to go to Melbourne and it was it was very much a one-way street but that's mm-hmm. also all I knew and so coming to Popey in Melbourne and actually him asking how are you feeling yeah what do you need to do today yeah was completely mind-blowing because I was like what do you mean you're the coach you just tell me yeah yeah <laughs> we had a squad hey we had an awesome squad you know. we, we had an awesome squad um we had Oh, far out. We had some good times, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Do you still think of yourself as an athlete or is that is that in the past? Probably because I haven't swum a lap since the day I retired <laughs> in March 2006. <laughs> that um, I don't really think of myself in a, as an athlete anymore. It feels like another person almost. It feels like a, such a, another lifetime ago and... It's funny, I was only thinking about it the other day where um, the older I get, actually the prouder I become of my Mm. achievements and I I actually uh, recognise them for what they are because I think I I probably, and I still feel this way, I I was an above-average athlete in a superstar era and I was tarnished with the same brush of a lot of, you know, our contemporaries who were around at the time and I feel... um, I always felt almost like a, a, a bit of an imposter in that in that world that I was mentioned in the same names as, as some of our best athletes of all time, and I certainly was not that, and I am not that. And uh, so it's funny how I, I guess I always pushed a lot of my achievements down and was very keen to move on with the rest of my life and prove that I could do something else. But the older I get, the Funnily enough, the prouder I become of of those swimming achievements because I recognise how hard it actually is, how hard the sport is and how brutal the sport can be and um, how much goes into it. And sometimes when the equation doesn't work, it really doesn't work. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And you should be proud. I mean, I'm looking at your accomplishments now over here and I'm like, I'm reminded, I, I know of them, but I'm reminded of them when I look at them, I'm like, holy shit. I mean, she was, she was good. I mean, you swam everything, the 50 back, the 200 free, the, I mean, relays and I mean, you, you won everywhere, but um, you were kind of a little bit of a child prodigy too, like winning the Com games at, at 15, right? Yeah. Um, and do you know what? It's really funny because if you go back to it, that's actually, I, 
you know how you talk about, I talk about life in sliding doors moments, like that movie with Gwyneth Paltrow and the fact that uh, there's so many moments in my life where I look back and say, whoa, if that hadn't happened, that wouldn't have happened. I would never have met that person. And Com Games was actually a sliding doors moment for me because Mm -hmm. up until that point, I'd only really dedicated myself to the sport of swimming about 18 months prior. Um, I loved netball. I know you don't have netball in the States, but netball over here. And I was a state rep netballer as a teenager. And I used to swim in the summer and play netball in the winter. And I loved my netball. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a really big decision. And it was actually Dennis who sat me down and said, look, you've actually got to decide if you, you've got a bit of talent, but you've got to decide if you want to give swimming a crack, you've got to do it now. And you've got to start training in the winter. You've got to start training in the mornings. You've got to actually give this sport a proper chance. And it was a family decision where we sat around the dining table, um, as all my decisions were back then as a a 13 year old. And, uh, it was actually my dad that said, look, I know you don't want to give up your netball, but for my money you can always come back to netball whereas Mm. swimming is a sport that you have to dedicate yourself to now so why don't you give it 12 months and see what happens and so that was like 13 and a half and I was I was nothing special at that stage and then I just something once I dedicated my sport to myself to swimming and and properly started training and and concentrating on it um I saw great improvement really quickly and making that Commonwealth Games team at 15, I got third in the 100 back at the Australian trials. So mm. they took me because um, I actually made a national team before I made a state team, which is hilarious. Wow. But uh, they thought it would be great experience and, you know, give this young kid a bit of a, a shot. And um, so, yeah, so I went to Com Games in, in KL in 1998 and uh, I was such an outside chance that I was 300 to 1 to win the 100 back. So even my dad didn't put any money on me. <laughs> dad put five bucks. Yeah, he's still like really furious about the fact that he didn't. And uh, I don't know, something happened. I found that um, that inner beast if you like and it just came out in that final of that 100 back and I won that 100 back and meant I got to swim the medley relay as well which we won as well so I came home as a 15 year old with two Commonwealth Games gold medals and all of a sudden I understood that what the Australian swim team was about I understood what it meant to wear the green and gold and I never wanted to not have that feeling again so from that was as I said sliding doors moment strangely enough of I want this and I want this feeling again and I'm prepared to do anything for this to continue that that's pretty cool that you had that at 15 but um you know you said you said this inner beast came out of you and you kind of like if you look at your career you had moments like that spread out throughout your whole career you know where you're winning olympic gold medals and world championship gold medals and i mean this this inner beast came out in you i mean you're you're a beautiful woman everybody knows that but it's like there, there's something else inside you there's this there's this darker person in you that <laughs> hates to lose right so like who's this person um it's hilarious because i if if you know me now i am not competitive in any way shape or form like it's hilarious i i I, i'm not a competitive i'm competitive with myself um in this but i'm not competitive with anyone else whereas when i swam i i can describe it perfectly um you know that i basically hated training by the end of it but I loved racing 
I yeah. love racing. Right. And if mm-hmm. I can say we could be like a, a footballer or a basketballer and get to race every week, mm-hmm. that's why I love the NCAA program. I, you know, wish that I probably would have had a chance to do that or something like that. I'm, I might still be 38 and try and make the Australian swim team because I loved racing. Yeah. Um, and it was like I would walk out. I never, I wasn't an athlete that got nervous. I got excited. And sometimes I had to actively work at getting myself nervous uh, because I knew that that's what, when I raced the best, the bigger the meat, the better I swam, the more pressure, the better I swam. Right. And I would walk out behind the blocks and any vision that there's there, you know, I'd walk out with this big smile on my face and wave to the crowd like a cheerleader when my name was announced. And inside I was like, get the hell out of my way, bitches. <laughs> I, I, I've worked harder than you. I deserve this more than you. Yeah. Um, might have been a few more superlatives in there, but it was my way of getting almost angry with the situation and backing myself 100% to say I knew I'd done the work. I trained with Grant Hackett and Daniel Kowalski and these, you know, in these distance squads that were just yeah. nuts. I knew I'd done more work than any other um, of the girls standing up next to me. And so that's where I got my confidence from was I've worked harder, therefore I deserve it more, therefore get out of my way. And yeah, there was a lot of women so, yeah, that so not a You know, like you like mm-hmm. You must have had that inner beast in you because there, there, there weren't a lot of women that were successful coming out of Dennis's pro- There's a lot of men and it seemed to be like one of those situations where, where guys were just up against each other grinding it out. So how is this, how's this young 15, 16-year-old girl mixing in with all these men that are just beating up on, on each other every day? Um, I think it's, again, so grateful for it because it's not like there was a female time cycle. It's not like there was a, um, a session that was for me. I kept up with the slowest man in the squad or I didn't keep up. And um, it was probably even more so in the mornings. We used to have, like to describe the Miami Swim Club on the Gold Coast um, is that in the mornings particularly, it is basically like open water swimming. You have every triathlete, you have every surf swimmer um, that at that stage was competing in the Uncle Toby surf series of both men and women in the squad with you. So there would quite easily be 15, 16 people per lane. Mm. And these surf swimmers, they want to tap you on the feet. They're not, you know, they're not starting 10 seconds behind you in the, in the time cycle. They're like on you and you are in whitewater the whole time. And um, I thrived on that because all of a sudden I had an ability to also keep up with the surf swimmers and the triathletes and they were males. And again, I just I had to find a way to keep up with the the you know someone. So there was always competition, and I was always inspired by the athletes around me. I mean, to watch Grant Hackett train and to watch um, Dan Kowalski train and to watch these athletes just push themselves to um, physical illness every mm. day is um, mind-blowing. And we were a very, very, very tight-knit squad. Um, They were my family. And they never treated me like I was the only girl. They treated me like I was a bona fide member of the squad, which I was, so that I'd have days where I was pumping them up and they'd have days where they were pumping me up. And, um, you know, anyone who says that it's an individual sport, it might be an individual sport on race day, but every other moment of it, um, I absolutely relied on my family, my team to get me through. And so that squad was um, instrumental in, we did some 
big Ks and big sessions and big weeks. And um, as I said, it's what gave me the confidence to stand up on race day and say, you know what, I deserve this. I'm capable of this and I deserve it. Who are you more like? Are you more like your mum or your dad? Uh, good question. I've got a hilarious family in the fact that my um, dad is a former air traffic controller <laughs> and um, my mum's been kind of in the, <laughs> my mum's kind of been in the fashion world her whole life in a way. And so my mummy's glass is half full. My dad is glasses half empty. My dad is a warrior. My mum is um, let life be. Mm. And I somehow sit probably in the middle. And uh, I'm definitely a much more positive person by nature. But I also have this probably calculated risk component of my brain, which is from my dad. So uh, I'd say that I'm a good mix, but when it came to my swimming, I was definitely my mum. There was no negative. There was no, I can't do this. There's no um, what ifs or it was just have a crack, see what happens. You've right. done the work, let yeah. it happen. So it was pretty cool. What about for you, the, the lead up to Sydney? What was that like for you? For me, I was I was a little bit older at that stage. I was around, you know, 24, 25. And so kind of coming towards that part of your career, it's like make or break. You're still young enough where you could afford to slip up a little bit and still have a good career. But was that was there a lot of pressure for you leading into that event? Um, funnily enough, yes and no. Uh, Sydney was awesome. Like, as you said, we it was this incredible Australian swim team of young athletes coming through. Yeah. More mature, experienced athletes who probably if an Olympics in their home country hadn't have been the draw card, they might have retired before then. Yeah. And we even had some that had made, Hayley Lewis made a comeback to compete in Sydney. So we had this... Uh, exceptional team and I felt I felt more so excited more than anything else and I was trying to um I remember trying to draw on the wisdom of you more experienced crew uh but also letting in some ways or allowing the enormity of this situation to sink in because knowing it was I mean how many athletes get to experience a home olympics in a home country like so few and so knowing that I swam well under pressure, I almost wanted the enormity, enormity of the situation to mm. sink in. I didn't want to try and play it down. I wanted to feel that energy. And Sydney was awesome. Um, you know, I was rooming with Susie O'Neill, like my idol, and uh, people like that. And it was it was absolutely extraordinary. But as a 17-year-old, you know, on one hand you've got this um, just 15-year-old Liesl Jones winning an individual silver medal. You've got mm-hmm. the men's team on the very first night, Thorpey winning the 400 free and then the four by one freestyle relay where oh. it just lifted the whole team. Like we all of a sudden it was like, whoa, okay, we're swimming fast at a home Olympics with all our family and friends in the crowd. Like let's go, like let's do it. And it was awesome. Yeah, I mean, you handled that well then because when I walked out, I couldn't breathe. I was like... <laughs> 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 that is the difference of sometimes of experience and maturity versus um, unbridled youth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like, oh, look, there's a cow. Oh, hey. <laughs> but you ended up winning a medal there, right? You, uh, what'd you get there? You got a silver yeah. in the in the medley. I got a silver, and silver in the four by two. Thing. Yep. So in the heats of the four by one medley relay, and we got a silver in the four by two freestyle relay. And um, yeah, it was. I mean, winning a medal was just 
insane. It was yeah. absolutely insane. And uh, it was probably at that time that I was I, having a, a little bit of a, not issue, but I was I was coming from um, a backstroker and doing a lot more freestyle work, um, a lot more distance work in training. And so that was kind of that transition period between turning from backstroke to freestyle and nothing was firing particularly well, but um, still came away, yeah, with two silver medals. So I was pretty happy. And then and that inspired you, I guess, for next year. You know, Fukuoka was just one of those memorable years for Australian swimming when where you know, Don Talbot wanted us to finally win the, the gold medal count in uh, at a World Championships and beat the U.S. And that was kind of one of those memorable teams. But for you, it was particularly memorable by winning the, the 200 freestyle there too, right? Yep. It was um, – this was an amazing meet on a, on a number of levels. Um, swimming was really big in Australia at that yeah. stage, obviously. And it was um, – oh, it was um, – Goodness, are you there? Yeah, yeah, it's all good. Oh, you can see me. Um, sorry, I don't know what just happened then, but you have gone. Oh, I have. Okay, I can still see you. Everything's still clear. Is it on right? yeah. Oh, well, I'll talk to you. I can't see you, but I'll keep talking. Sorry, I'll start again on that question. Yeah. Um. So, um, yeah, Fukuoka was an amazing time in the fact that. I mean, I I have so many stories from that meet. It's unbelievable and they're all coming back to me. But 2001, first of all, we went over. I trained on the Gold Coast, but I'm the palest kid in the world. Like I get yeah. some 10 minutes. Um, and anyway, we arrived in Japan and it was crazy. Like remember how it was just crazy that um, how much the Japanese public loved Australian swimming. And Especially I mean, Thorpe too. Thorpey was just being mobbed at the airport. There yeah. was security everywhere. They he was like a rock star had yeah. had arrived, and yeah. um, they all wanted access to him. It was unbelievable. There was an Aussie beef convention going on in our hotel, and all of a sudden, the Australian swim team was like the um, special guest because we would just clear out their buffet of Aussie beef um, every night at the hotel. But I'll never forget the first day we arrived, and we arrived in the morning, and and Dennis was like, "We're going to go and do a training session." I was like, "Cool." Competition pool wasn't open just then, so we trained outdoors, and. It was the middle of summer and we're in the pool at midday uh, in Fukuoka and, you know, Hacky's fine. He's, you know, sun all okay. Mm. I ended up with heat stroke, <laughs> sunstroke after oh, wow. the very first training session, even though plastered in sunscreen. But um, I got proper sunstroke oh, in wow. Fukuoka um, before World Champs started and was actually throwing up back at the hotel and the team doctor had to give me an injection to stop me throwing up. And <laughs> I'll never remember that now. Cool way to um, head into World Championships. Awesome. Um, but managed to recover. And uh, then the next interesting story out of there is we had the 4 by 2 freestyle relay first. Um, and... A lot of people in Australia seem to remember this moment because it was massive at the time. But uh, I had Linda McKenzie, Patria Thomas and Elka Graham and myself swimming the 4x2 freestyle relay. Um, I was anchor leg. We won in a championship record time and we were in the middle of our interview uh, on pool deck um, live to Australian TV and it came up that we were disqualified 
And we were kind of ushered off by our media manager and we were like, what did we get disqualified for? We know we didn't break. We were, we were very quite, we were actually quite slow on most of our changeovers, very, very safe. And uh, so we couldn't work out what we got disqualified for. As it turns out, I distinctly remember I was anchor leg of that four by two. And, uh, you know, we finished, we won. It was amazing. And a Japanese cameraman actually came up to the rest of the girls and said, oh, you jump in, you know, jump in. I get great oh. pictures of you celebrating together. Wow. So the rest of the girls jumped in the water, not even thinking about it. And as it turned out, lane eight, I believe, hadn't finished swimming. And it was a new rule brought in that you couldn't jump in until all swimmers had finished the race. Mm. So um, we got disqualified for that. But, you know, we still had to do drug testing, still had to do press conference, still had to do all of that. And then Elka and I had to, um, I think we got to bed at about, one one thirty, and it was big news back home in Australia that we we got disqualified, even though we'd won. And you know they tried to use video footage anyway; it didn't work. And Elka and I had to get up and swim the heats of the individual two hundred free the next morning. And so, um, what my greatest asset was the ability to sleep anytime, anywhere, <laughs> switch off. It's like the more pressure, the more uh, stress on my brain. My body goes you can't deal with this, I'm going to switch you off. So had a great sleep, woke up the next morning and swam the heats of the 200 free, felt good. Um, semifinals felt good. And then into the final, I, I just had this feeling and it, it was just one of those swims that we all talk about where everything comes together. Mm. And it's not that it felt easy, but it just felt like I was in control the whole way. I knew I didn't have the speed to go out with the rest of the girls. I had to turn. I knew I had to be within half a body length at the 100-metre mark, um, and I knew that if I was within a whiff of the leader at the 150-metre mark, I won. Like I just knew. Really? And I just felt this surge in this in that last 50 of um, like another level that just came when I needed it. And pure euphoria when you when you hit the wall and turn around you realize you've won a, a world championship it's just um it's like nothing else and I think I I screamed and everyone at home said it nearly broke the <laughs> you know broke the tvs because it was my scream was so loud and piercing and uh but you know my mum was in the crowd watching me and it was oh, wow. just um it was just awesome and it I was probably, as again, the older I get, the more proud I was of the fact that we'd come from a really big controversy in yeah. this DQ the night before. I managed to turn around, turn it around by the next day and go, right, today's a new day, next job, let's get on with it. And um, I think that's something I've always been pretty good at is like, right, okay, can't control that situation anymore, move on, what's next? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great lesson too because uh, that's really swimming in a nutshell. You just got to put it behind you. You can't worry about the the ups and the downs. You've just got to roll with the punches. I think the best athletes do that, you know? Yeah. Um, and you, I mean, it's not always going to work out. Um, I think I've always said, and it'd be interesting to see if you agree, that there's many athletes that can do it once or have success once, but it is so much harder to have consistency over a career. It is oh, yeah. so hard to have consistency and to back it up. And um, more than anything, what you want to do is to prove to everyone that it's not a fluke. Prove to everyone, including yourself, that you're just not a 
a one-hit wonder, um, you know, that you can do it and you you want that feeling more than anything. I often describe myself when I was swimming as an addict. I was an addict to that feeling of hard work paying off and the success that came with it. And getting up and singing a national anthem on a podium was my absolute addiction. Uh, yeah. And I wanted nothing more than to feel that again. So um, there has to be a part of resilience in there. There has to be a overcoming adversity of some description. There's there's good times, there's bad times, but the good times are so much sweeter uh, when you have had a few things that have kept you down beforehand. How did you manage the the, the fame and the fortune, kind of in a way that that came with that? As as a swimmer, you know, we're not, we're we're not making millions and millions of dollars like Thorpey, but certainly you're you've got money coming in now, and and you're and you're getting some. Um, sponsors and publicity i find that that that's challenging for a lot of swimmers to go from kind of nothing to something all of a sudden how was that for you in some ways i was really fortunate um because i was 15 uh, when made my first australian team and had my first little bit of a success i actually had sponsors from the age of 15 and uh i was fortunate in the fact that there was money coming in and it wasn't huge money, but it was good money. And it meant that I could definitely support myself. I wasn't reliant on my parents like a lot of athletes are. Um, I didn't have to look at trying to get a part-time income or find other Mm. ways to support myself. So swimming became my job from quite an early age. And at the start, that was amazing um, and it set me up for life. I'll be mm-hmm. quite honest. You know, my dad was really good in the finance department and sat me down and said, look, you're earning money from a young age. You can blow it all on the, the latest whatever you like. I think at yeah. that stage it was a digital camera and sunglasses were the cool yeah. thing to have like yeah. back in, you know, 98, 99. Yeah. Um, but uh, he said, but if you want to be smart with your money and save it up and put it put enough aside for a deposit on a piece of real estate, you'll be ahead for the rest of your life. And that's proven correct for me. So I would be lying if I said that I wasn't also driven by the dollars that came with swimming. Not not yeah. the fame side. I didn't didn't like nor need the fame side. And I know that's really easy to say, but um, I've probably felt more pressure to look a certain way in that department. Yeah. Whereas the money side I really enjoyed because, as I said, I felt like I was setting myself up for my future. I, I really felt like I was putting down, um, I was putting down pavers at that point that were were going to set me up for the rest of my life. And I loved that feeling of independence and um, and knowing that I could support myself. So that was a driver, and it wasn't probably until I was after those world championships in Fukuoka that I probably had a moment where I also realized that all of a sudden there, there was that fear of failure came because I realized that I had, there were other people relying on me and that I had a responsibility to other people other than myself and my coach and my squad and my family. And so uh, there was definitely a time for me where I questioned, Oh my gosh, do I want to do this? Uh, Is this what I want to do? Am I cut out for this? What happens if it doesn't work? What happens if um, I don't succeed? What happens if I don't have the performances? Uh, There's a lot of people that are relying on me. Mm. So That was a really big, hard moment in my career. 
Um, I had a really hard Commonwealth Games in 2002 in Manchester where I was the reigning world champion and I had gone home after Fukuoka and gone, right, I want to prove that that was not a fluke. I'm going to work harder than I ever had before. Mm. And we did. Um, I was nearly breaking world records in training. Like I was flying and we were doing 15 sessions a week. We were doing big work, um, you know. Yeah like big work and um and again i loved it because as i said all i wanted to do was prove that that wasn't a fluke i I wanted feeling more than anything again and uh so that next 12 months just was i was so proud of the work that we put in and um came to commonwealth games in manchester and i'm the reigning world champion 200 free and I'll never forget it. I felt never felt good during taper, talked myself through it, never felt good in heats, talked myself through it, got to the final. I qualified like uh, outside lane, I think, in a, in a final. And uh, I'll never forget, usually the back end of my race is the, the best of my uh, race. And here I was turning at the 150 meter mark. And I distinctly had a memory of feet on the wall at the 150 meter mark and thinking, I actually don't know how I'm going to get to the other end. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to get to the other end. And this is the first time in history that normally redundant lifeguard on the side of the pool that's at every competition <laughs> is actually going to have to do some work and they're going to have to come and fish me out. <laughs> um, I so remember that and it was awful. I finished sixth in that 200 free at the Commonwealth Games as, yeah. you know, the world champ. And I was beyond gutted because I hadn't allowed myself to think about how shit I was feeling. Yeah. Um, until it was all over and so anyway um it was awful came home as it turns out i had glandular fever and an infected wisdom tooth so Mm. i had some answers but it wasn't enough because i felt robbed of the work that i'd put in and that the outcome hadn't hadn't eventuated uh and so that really again launched everything for me where i wanted to walk away from the sport um, I thought maybe that's it. Maybe that's all I've got. Maybe that's the best I'll ever be. Really flat, really depressed, really uh, struggled going to training and all the rest of it. And, again, I had a point where I know a lot of athletes go some, through some really hard points and I never wanted anything bad to happen. But I remember driving to training at 5 o'clock in the morning and um, hoping that someone would hit me in the car like hoping someone would hit me. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to die. I didn't want, I just wanted a reason to be in the hospital and to not have to, and some breathing time. Wow. So really, really low point. And yep, it was at that point where I really thought about walking away. And my family again said, you know what, maybe you just need a change of scenery. Maybe you know, you owe it to yourself. You've put so much into it. Maybe you owe yourself, give it another shot with a change of scenery. And that's how I ended up in Melbourne with Popey. Wow. Yeah, so and that's, that's kind of where I'm, I really got to know you. I mean, we'd obviously been on teams and travelled together, but I, I obviously got to know you more then. But that's I, that was certainly the point where I knew you had kind of a love-hate relationship with swimming at that point, you know? You, yep. you know, you certainly still love to compete and you still love to be part of a team and still love to represent your country. But the training had really gotten to you at that point. It had really beaten you down for sure. 
I also didn't know any other way except to do mileage. Right. When I came to Popey, as I said, I, I only knew how to do kilometres and um, and not only did I pride myself on that, secondly, it was the only way that I got confidence on race day, remember, was to say I've done more work than you, therefore I deserve it more. Right. So coming to Popey's squad where it wasn't as much about the mileage, as I said, it was it was you and that squad that taught me that you have to train smarter not necessarily do the kilometres, you need to train smarter. And I just, I didn't know how to do that. That had never been a part of my um, upbringing or my my way of swimming. Um, and so I was struggling with so many things in the fact, well, how do I get confidence on race day mm. if I can't get up there and say I've done more work than you? So I found it really hard in my head to reconcile those two different programs. And um, as I said to you, all I wanted to do was race and do the part that I loved. But um, particularly in Australia, we we race twice a year. You had the Australian yeah. Championships, yeah. which doubled as a selection event, and you had the major international of the year. That was it. That was all um, at that stage, the old school coaches, that's all that they would allow you to race mm-hmm. because, again, it was all about doing mileage. You can't miss a week of training to go and do a week of racing. Yeah. And uh, that's my only small regret out of swimming is that if I had my time again, knowing the type of athlete that I was, I would have done a lot more overseas racing, a lot more of the World Cup circuit, mm. a lot more of the Man Nostrum Tour, any of those those meets that you can almost train through them, but I would have got my fix of racing. And that maybe also made it, might have given me a couple of more years on my career. Yeah, I think no doubt for sure. You know, it, it was certainly a point where I could tell that the training was really wearing on you. But mm. I'm did you make a conscious decision at that point to go back to backstroke or was just the freestyle not clicking or what was going on there? There, was, there wasn't a lot of stuff that was clicking, to be honest. And um, I think probably in my own brain, I had to look at the fact that 100 back, 50 back as a shorter distance um, meant that I could make that work in my head better with the work that we were doing with Popey and the more right. sprint size program rather than the 200 free, which had only ever been a great race for me when I was essentially doing distance work. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so I, it wasn't a conscious decision. It was probably more of a, um, a subconscious, this is the only way the equation works in my brain is that if I'm doing less work, then I've got to swim a shorter distance and hopefully those sprint fibres would come through, um, which they did. And, you know, that's where very thankful that the sprint fibres never really came through in 100 free, but it, um, it came back a little bit in the 100 back and the 50 back. <laughs> well, Toby could coach some backstroke. He, he knew backstroke real well. So I think you, you went to the right coach there for sure. Um, yeah. You, you had Matt Welsh in your group too who could swim some backstroke. But you were always a phenomenal kicker too. I remember your kick. You had this beautiful kick and your feet always – you could do some crazy shit with your feet too. Like <laughs> – like you had no tendons in your ankles. Funnily enough, I think it's actually amazing that you remember that, but I had no flexibility in any other part of my body. Like I still to this day cannot touch my toes, but my ankles are the yeah. only flexible part of yeah, my it's body. Like you, had, it's like you had these flippers <laughs> right at the bottom, you know? <laughs> I love to kick. Remember when we had kick sessions? I was like, yes, yeah, kick yeah. sessions. 
bring it on. <laughs> yeah. Here's me with a clunky That's feet. Another thing that I wish that I <laughs> that is another thing that I wish that I worked more on though. My skills were horrible. My yeah, starts yeah. were horrible. My turns were horrible. Like when it when you really boil it down and strain it out, my skills were terrible. And, you know, that is something that coming from a distance squad, we weren't as focused on. Yeah. And, again, if I had stayed in the sport longer and stayed with Popey and, um, you know, we'd really dissected where my, where my gains could be, it would have absolutely have been out of skills. And that's, yeah. you know, where I was really poor and, uh and yeah, again, wish that I'd. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, but wished I'd worked on those skills a little bit more because um, I think I could have had much better gains in that department. Yeah, well, look, I, I I look at things that I've done with some of my athletes, you know, in the past ten years, and I think, man, I wish I had have done some of that stuff too. You know, yeah. I wish, I, wish I'd have just coached myself. But, but you ended <laughs> up winning, you know, gold medals at the Olympics, so it wasn't terrible. But um, so. <laughs> That's actually my my favorite trip of all all the trips that that that, yeah. that one back there that 04 trip. I don't know why that really stands out. I just love that trip. I love that team. I loved um, everything yeah. about the Athens Olympics. It was just one of those games, and and you ended up um, swimming the backstroke leg in the in the 400 medley relay. And, and did you guys break the world record in that? We did. Yeah, wow. we did. Wow. Um, it was crazy. It's, it's still, I mean, how can you ever say that Olympic gold medal is not your, your favorite moment um, yeah. in your sport? Um, but it was the, it was the, there were so many stories about that Olympics and it was even, it, it was, it was even, do you remember getting off the bus the first time that he straight, first of all, there was no roof on the pool. There was meant to be a roof on the pool, ran out of time, ran That's out of right. money open air pool and I'll never forget um getting off the team bus for the first time and seeing the competition venue for the first time and all the uh Greek officials were smoking on pool deck and like three quarters of the Australian swim team is asthmatic myself included (laughs) and we literally got onto pool deck the first time we're seeing the venue and they went Oh no! You've all got to get back on the bus. We've got to clear <laughs> clear the smoke off the deck. So all our team managers went back and said, "Can you stop smoking on pool deck?" And about half an hour later, we got off the bus and had our first session at the conference. <laughs> like it was, um, but it was it was an amazing trip. It was an amazing team, and you know, it is my favorite story actually of that that four by one medley relay. Like I, you know, you've got. Patria Thomas, who had already won two gold medals from that Olympics. You had uh, Liesl Jones, who by her own admission had had an up and down um, Olympics up until that point. Uh, And Jodie Henry, who I effectively call, affectionately call the space cadet. Because she just (laughs) had no idea how good she was. She had no idea about being competitive or um, wanting to win. She was just completely oblivious to the fact that she was as good as she was and um i know you had her on the on the show a couple of weeks ago and she's just amazing i still don't know if it properly sinks in how extraordinary she was um but we're the last event of the athens olympics for the swimming we're the last event on the last day and so the four of us girls are sitting in the marshalling area and we're watching hacky 
win his second consecutive 1500 on the screens um, mm. in the pool outside, knowing um, what he had been through, knowing he was swimming with half a lung, um, was just amazing. But I had an out-of-body experience in the marshalling area where I looked around the room and I realised that we were the only team preparing as a team. Every other team was almost mm. preparing as an individual and so you know um there'd be a girl off stretching in the corner there'd be one girl with headphones on there'd be one girl you know over here doing her thing and um well, the four of us were sitting there in this tight little group and we had no need to talk about tactics or to pump each other up we just had complete faith that each member of this team was going to do their job to their best of their ability and we were having the most random conversations where I think Patria had uh, was engaged at that stage and was about to be married uh, after the Olympics and um, she was like I just need to find a way to get out of the village and go and see Julian, my fiancé. We were almost um, talking about which exit out of the athlete's village had less security on it (laughs) at that stage. And then... um, Liesl was like, you know what, I haven't had an ice. I've been so good with my diet and everything. I've, you know, I've, I've never had an ice cream. I've never had anything. And tonight all I'm going to eat is magnums for dinner. Like I'm going to go straight to the ice cream cabinet and that's all I'm going to eat for dinner. And then Jody was, um, you know, sitting there with her legs crossed, kind of looking at her fingernails and saying, if we do get to go out, um, I'm wondering what colour I should paint my fingernails. <laughs> Like this is a conversation we're having for an Olympic final and it was was amazing. And so, yeah, um, I I wasn't particularly, I wasn't having a great meet um, by my own admission. I hadn't swum well in my individual events, but that relay just, again, something came alive and I swam the backstroke leg, um, broke the Australian record in that lead-off leg and, um, you know, it was up against some of the most extraordinary backstrokers of all time, you know. Natalie Coughlin was just um, a mind-blowing superstar in the lanes next to me and, um, again, I felt that I did the best job that I could for that team and um, Lisa was phenomenal, Patria was phenomenal, Jodie brought it home like a the champion that she is and so Olympic gold medal and world record and it was um it's still to this day the reason why uh I sing the national anthem uh here in Oz and I sing loudly proudly badly but um you know it gives me goosebumps every single time because it takes me back to those kind of moments is Patria a Queenslander as well no, Patria is a New South Welshman. She's actually she got a pool. Um, <laughs> she's actually got a pool in um, Mullumbimby. Oh, sure, right. it's Mullumbimby, not Mullumbar, but Mullumbimby, named after her, the Patria Thomas Pool. Oh wow! And so yeah, she was a little country um, town. Grew up in a little country town, uh, swimming, and uh, before she went to the AIS. That's right. That's right. But it is yeah. wild how crazy talent, how much talent comes out of Queensland, right? What is it about yeah. Queensland? Um, I think it's definitely, it's not only the weather. Uh, the weather is so conducive to being in the water and you are surrounded by water. If right. there's, if you don't have a backyard pool, your neighbour has a backyard pool, mm. um, there's not only community pools but the ocean, there's lakes, there's canals, there's waterway systems, like that there's just water everywhere. I think Schools it's also is good too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And 
I also think back then swimming was a part of the school curriculum growing mm. up. So every kid learnt to swim and you wanted nothing more than to play with your mates and so that meant swimming or being in the water of some description. So I think it's just almost innate to Queenslanders to uh, be a competent swimmer because you need to be a competent swimmer to be able to enjoy the water and that usually goes on to falling into either a a swimming training squad or a surf squad or a triathlon squad of some description. It's freaky to... um you know, if we were to put a stat on the amount of Olympic gold medals that have come out of Queensland, yeah. you know, in, in Olympic history, um, yep. compared to most countries, it would it'd be staggering, wouldn't it? Yep. I think there's also something about um, knowing that history as well. Like you're surrounded by it. So, mm-hmm. you know, every, every squad has right. nearly Olympic champions as part of their history. Yeah. So I grew up, you know, Miami Swimming Club and there's all the Olympians that have represented Miami Mm. photos on the wall. So it's every day when you go to training, it's there, like prevalent, and you want Mm. to add your photo to that collection more than anything else. So you're, you're quite aware from a young age of the historical significance of the sport of swimming in Queensland. And um, as I said, I think, you know, I love that saying, you cannot be what you cannot see. And we literally could see it every day. It was there. It was, you know, these amazing people that had done amazing things and they were from our, our squad or our club. Isn't it crazy to think of, you know, that time where you, where you were then to where you are now and what you've done with your life since then? I mean, it's pretty wild, G. Like the, I mean, you've had kind of an Olympic experience in broadcasting as well. There's not many people that have gone on to do what you've done in television and 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 broadcasting the way you've done it so um it's just wild how did that all come about um again i i never like saying um you know i was just lucky my favorite quote on the back of my bathroom door was the harder i work the luckier i get um and i know you love nitschke as well so in terms of that uh I, I think it came a time where I was fortunate that I was sponsored by Channel 9 mm. for a couple of the last years of my swimming career. And I got to speak to quite a few people in there. And that was a time of media in Australia where, you know, swimming was massive and they got you on to many different TV shows just to have a chat. And so, you know, I'd do a a chat on the footy show or I'd do a guest appearance on this, that and the other. And uh, obviously in Melbourne at the time, I remember that uh, the head of sport at Channel 9 had said to me, "Um, what do you want to do life after swimming? I was like, I've got no idea. And he's like, well, you can talk. When you hang up the togs, come and see me. I'll see if I can find you a job. And um, that's pretty much what happened in the fact that I retired at 23 after the 2006 Commonwealth Games and I knew I was ready. You were 23 then? I was 23, yep. Yep, the ripe old age of 23. And I knew that I'd had enough and it was a light bulb moment a couple of months out of Com Games where um, I recognised for the first time in training that I was actually proud of myself. Isn't that bizarre? Like, you know. When you're in it, all you're thinking about is I'm um, I'm only as good as my next race. Right, like yeah. I, 
don't, I want to prove that's not a fluke. I don't want to rest on my laurels. I've got to do it again. I want that feeling again. Um, I recognised swimming up and down at MSAC that I was proud of myself. <laughs> and contentment, um, I guess, hey? Yeah. It was, a, it was, it was more a sense of um, I took stock of my achievements and right. went, you know what, it's, it's certainly not like I look back and I have any regrets. I wouldn't do anything differently. I worked my butt off and I certainly I couldn't change any of the outcomes no matter how hard I tried. Um, and with that realisation that I was proud of myself also came the realisation that if I was proud of myself that maybe I'd also lost that 1% of hunger that is required to compete well at the top level. Mm. So it was it was a bittersweet moment because it was like, okay, I recognise that if I'm proud of myself, that also means I have no regrets and it also means I've probably lost that, that little bit of hunger. So that's probably a good time to call it quits. So I wanted to go out at the top of my game. I wanted to go out on my terms. I wanted to go out when I was ready mm. and I realised that I was ready. So um, it's not like I ever made plans for life after, but uh, again, I I moved straight into Channel Nine at that stage, who still had the broadcast rights for the swimming. The first thing I ever did, I had to do as part of my contract, was a show called Dancing on Ice, <laughs> which um, was massive in the UK because Torval and Dean, the incredible, you know, Olympic. Um, ice skating gold medalist legends over there. It was their show, Torval and Dean's Dancing on Ice. Um, It was the first thing I did out of swimming. I did eight weeks of training. I, you know, coming from straight out of sport as well, I was like, right, we're training eight hours a day. And my skating partner was from Wales and came up to about here on me. (laughs) (laughs) And um, he was like, whoa, do we, do we, so you want to go back to the rink and go train? I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> I was like, right, you know, I don't, I've never skated before. I'm not making a fool of myself on national television. We're training until I get this. So we did eight weeks of training and um, I did the first show and uh, first live show. Next day where I wanted my training partner, we were back on the rink at 7am the next morning and um, broke and dislocated my ankle. Oh, jeez. <laughs> But anyway, it was, again, it was, it was, that story was to show that, you know, it was a time where um, media in Australia was, was very accepting of former athletes coming into their world. And I was literally thrown in the deep end on every different type of TV program. And I loved it. It was quite literally sink or swim. And uh, But what I knew more than anything was particularly doing live TV, the thing I loved about swimming more than anything was race day and getting up on behind the blocks and feeling that adrenaline and uh, knowing that I had one chance to get it right. And all of a sudden here I am doing live TV with these exact same feelings Mm. that I love. So I knew I was in the right place. I had no issue with the transition because all of a sudden I'd found something straight away that challenged me um, and fulfilled me the same ways that swimming did. Um, And, yeah, quite quickly travelling all over the world, doing different things for different programs. And um, Did they give you formal training? No, no. That's what I mean. Sink or swim. Have a chat. (laughs) Have a chat and see what happens. And uh, 
I think, um, you know, at that time, and it was probably because I was fortunate enough to have sponsors and have to publicly speak all the way through right. my swimming career, yeah. that that translated really well to media world. Yeah. Yeah, because you, like, I, I watched you at the trials, uh, obviously, just recently, and you're so comfortable in that position. And, like, a lot of people are cliche and they'll say the same things and it's kind of clunky and uncomfortable. Like, you relate so well to the athletes and you just say the right thing at the right time. You get in at the right time. You get out at the right time. To me, it just seems very natural and flowing to me. And I wondered, like, did they train her to do that or is she just naturally good at it, I guess? <laughs> um, my favourite part of my job is interviewing athletes. Really? I love it because um, – it's not even interviewing athletes, it's interviewing people because everyone has a story. Everyone has a story. Um, even the like cab driver or your Uber driver that you sit with, they have mm -hmm. a story. And yeah. Even if they don't realise it, most people have extraordinary ways of coming to be where they are at that point in time. Right. Um, but with athletes and particularly swimmers, uh, I... I actually do get more nervous interviewing them in that live situation than I do doing anything else, even when I was swimming myself. And I get far more nervous watching them race because I almost feel like a proud parent watching mm. them and I know how much work has gone into that moment yeah. um, <clears throat> and knowing how much it means to them. And my responsibility, I feel a huge responsibility to allow them to tell their stories mm. because, they don't get a chance quite often to tell their stories and they're relying on us for us to tell their stories for them, what they've been through, what's happened in their in their lives leading up to that moment, why this moment means so much, the trials and the tribulations of sport and not only sport but of life that have come to that point in time. And so um, I always remember hearing, uh, I think it was Andrew Denton that said, you know, a great interviewer will put their ego aside and never make a statement to a person, you know, um, whereas you, you want to prove, I, I can understand it because when you're interviewing someone, you want to prove that you've done your research. You want to prove that you know their story and that, um, you know, you're worthy of, of almost asking that question. Right, yeah, yeah. If you give them the answer in your question, then you're not actually getting anything from the person you're interviewing. So I'm always trying to find a way to lead that athlete into, you know, the answer that we all want and that we're all looking for without giving away their answer in that question. Um, wow, and, I, I mean, trials is crazy. That's good. It is. You got to you, you got to park your ego in a way, and that's why the the great um, the great talkers will will know where you're leading them and give you the answer that you're looking for. Yeah. Um, the young ones are harder because sometimes when you get a one word answer, you've got to give them a bit more in that question to, <laughs> to get them to say something back to you. But I mean, trials was extraordinary. I I've never cried so much. Either tears of happiness or tears of um, being shattered for athletes like I did on live TV because, you know, those stories were amazing. Like Kaylee McEwen, 10, 10 mm. months to the day since she lost her dad and here she is breaking a world record. Um, you know, athletes that walked away basically when they knew Olympics had been postponed for 12 months, not, not knowing how they were going to get through 12 months. Athletes that had changed coaches or had surgery or all these things that they never would have done 
if the Olympics had been on last year. Yeah. Um, so there seem to be more stories of resilience uh, at these trials. How, how is there a girl going 153 in the 200 freestyle, G? Like, um, how is there four Australian women under 53 seconds? Oh, that's madness, man. Man, that's so good. Yeah. So good. It's, um, and you know what? I, I didn't expect it, Hawkey. I think I can probably say that in the fact that, uh, you know, Australian swimming has been um, – I don't want to sound disrespectful, but we've been in a bit of a lull for the last few years. And I just feel like this trials ignited everyone. Like the last 12 months have been extraordinary for a lot of athletes where they're like, right, why am I doing this? Why, how do I change um, what I'm doing to make sure that, you know, this, this timeline has been pushed out what do I do to make sure that I'm ready by the time this timeline comes around again? And I, I was blown away by not only the times but the depth in so mm. many of those events. It was crazy. Yeah, it's nice to see kind of a resurgence in a way mm. of Australian swimming because, you know, I'm over in America and it's, mm. and it's nice to hear Americans talking about Australians again in, in a competitive yeah. sense, like, oh, they've got a team. Like they've got – it's just not one or two players anymore. It's like yeah. the Aussies have a team again and, and um, it's nice, you know, like that rivalry, that competitiveness going into an Olympics is, is, is pretty cool. So oh, It's amazing. And um, I think also us, it's really helped us doing what the Americans do and doing the trials five to six yeah. weeks out. Yeah. I think that was a really great move because yeah. before it was six months out. And as you know, a lot can change and a lot can happen in six months. So yeah, um, this, this way we know we've got our most informed team. And I think that in some ways has added to the pressure and that way those athletes that are good with pressure um, have really learnt to adapt to this uh, that new timeline, and it's working yep. for them. Yeah, it's awesome to see. I love I love the resurgence. I love uh, they got some they got some potential medal gold medalists out there too, which is awesome. Now uh, you're going to Tokyo? No, I was meant to go last year. Um, we're having a huge issue once again here in Australia with um, with COVID. And uh, really? so calling it off a screen in Melbourne at this stage. Really? So, wow. yeah, it's um, it's going to, I mean, it's much harder from a broadcasting point of view. We had a couple of guys that had to do it um, for trials even. Nicole Livingston and Hacky had to, were out of Melbourne. They were meant to be in Adelaide and couldn't get out due to COVID restrictions. And so we'll be calling it all off a screen for Tokyo. And um I, I must admit, I find that that makes my job so much harder because when you're not yeah. on pool deck, you're not being able to see what's happening off camera, mm. you're not able to see coaches' reactions, you're not able mm. to see what someone's looking like before, but behind the blocks, mm. all of those things um, make uh, make reading the situation so much harder. So, again, my responsibility is the athletes, and I just yeah. I just hope we're able to do them justice yeah it's going to be tough but uh if there's any anyone to do it you'll do a great job i'm sure of it listen i know you got a young family there and they're probably running around 
looking for mom. So I appreciate your time and, and taking taking an hour out. And uh, so you and your husband are what macadamia farmers now? Yeah, isn't that crazy? Like talk about um, we literally moved to northern New South Wales about a month ago now three weeks ago a month ago now so we have 150 acres and 6,000 uh, macadamia nut trees and wow. uh yeah we are we are on the farm loving life the kids um, my son's out on his four-wheeler my daughter's got a pony so um we're uh we're doing the tree change and loving it that's super cool that's awesome yeah. I'm, I'm so glad we got to catch up and good to see you and uh i'll be certainly listening into the broadcast so good luck with all that all right absolutely thanks hawkey awesome chat yep thanks g take care all right thank you bye